2: Heko nae nā nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Aotearoa New Zealand has just over 200 bird species, about 170 of which are native. Ireland's got over 450 species. They evolved in different environments, but today birds in both nations face threats such as diseases, changing land use, and of course climate change. So how are they doing, and are we helping or hindering? This week we continue our battle of the birds. Let the talons rake and the feathers fly as today we will announce the winner of the great Ireland versus New Zealand bird off No my Kitiao Hurehanga. welcome to our changing world co Cla and Canon. Today I'll be your host, judge and jury and keeper of the peace because we're back with our avian aficionados to decide once and for all who will take out the snood, the crest, the crown. Last week's opening salvos saw the white-crested sea eagle defeat the Moa and Haast eagle on account of not being extinct. And we saw the Kea outsmart the Northern Raven. Titi Paunamu was gifted a win over the gold crest in a move Ireland might yet regret, and we've finished up with a mighty showdown. Sirocco the Kakapo versus the Swallow, the Herald of the Summer. In a controversial decision prompted by childhood memories, the Swallow was given the win to leave everything tied up at 2-all. And so we're back to sort this out once and for all. Representing the island of Ireland, we have Ricky Whelan defender of crows, biodiversity officer at Offaly County Council and co-host of the In Your Nature podcast with Birdwatch Ireland.
0: Okay, me
2: Jamie Macaulay is putting forward the case for New Zealand's feathered friends. A kiwi cuddler, Chaos stalker and friend to the rock wren, he's a conservation biologist with the Department of Conservation working in Fjordland National Park.
1: Kiara.
2: Ricky and Jamie will be given some categories for which they must nominate a bird champion. Points will be awarded according to a completely unknowable rubric I have created. The hooded crow heralds the win for Ireland, <laughs> and the call of the Kea a New Zealand triumph. <laughs> but first, as a warm up, I ask our representatives the hardest question of all What's your favourite bird?
1: Ooh. I mean, this is hard. Clear. This is like asking me to choose a favorite child. Like, I come know on.
2: asking a bird their their favorite bird. Mm. We don't have two hours, Jamie, and it's just one bird. Okay, yeah, so choose it, wisely. Man. Just.
1: <laughs> I think for this, I've got to choose the the great New Zealand bush ninja, the kōkako. So, um, kōkako. They're a perching bird, a, a sub passerine, but a big guy about you know about thirty centimeters tall. Some of the bird books, you know, some of the bird books, they call them. Poorly flighted uh, i i mean i I don't think they're there. I think they're very good at what they do. They just prefer to glide um, and so they sort of run and hop through the canopy and sub canopy level and then do short little glides between different branches and trees they've got sort of a almost like a bandana across their eyes of this sort of black stripe that just makes them look like total ninjas and they sort of so they sort of running and glide run and glide through the canopy sort of almost like what you might see a squirrel doing and they sort of have this squirrel like vibe to me but the most special thing about Kokako for me has got to be the song so they've got this um crazy well often described as haunting song with these sliding notes that sort of um slide from one note down into another note I have this memory of being in Orta Forest Park in the central North Island um, and we we're, were doing some monitoring to go out and do this and um, you want to be in place at dawn, you know, when first light you want to be at your first bird station and so we'd bumped away on a on a four wheel drive track in the dark, you're walking through the bush with your head torch on to get to your first spot and I was there a little bit early and I s- sat down under this massive big rimu tree was sitting there and we were ho- we hadn't been detecting a lot of these things and we were hoping this spot might be the go. Um, and so I was sitting there, six o'clock in the morning as the first light starts to come and and one of these Kokako lights up with this bong. And then all around me in five or six directions these there, there's um just this magnificent so it's it's hard to describe the sound apart from just feeling quite deeply spiritual. And that's um yeah, that's that's my favorite New Zealand bird.
2: Jamie gives a nod to the gliding mellifluous bush ninja, but Ricky's having none of it.
0: I see your kōkako, and I present you the sky ninja that is the common swift, apis apis. The lord of the skies. Now, you talk about a bird that's poorly flighted. These things have mastered flight inside and out. So we're talking about a species just slightly larger than a swallow, which we spoke to in an earlier episode. So, like, easily fit in your palm. But they've got these long, sickle-shaped wings. The bird is completely, I would say, slate grey all over, but silhouetted against the summer sky because they only migrate here to Ireland in the summer. They look completely black. So they're just these masterful sort of sickle-shaped flight demons. They're just weapons of the birds when it comes to flight. Their ecology is just fascinating in that once they leave the nest, they don't land again until they stop to nest themselves. That could be to prospect their own nest site the following year. So they could be in flight for constant flight for seven, eight months of the year. But some would argue because they're not mature enough to breed until they're two or three or even four, that they can remain in constant flight for a number of years without ever resting to stop. The Greek apis, apis refers... It's a, it actually means without feet, which is not the case. They have feet, very strong feet, but they're adapted for clinging onto walls. So if they end up on the ground by mistake, they find it very hard to sort of take flight again. So they are birds of the sky. They eat, they drink, they mate... And they sleep on the wing. They can go into autopilot. They'll go above the weather and all the sort of problems of wind and rain. And they'll switch off one side of their brain. And the next day, as light returns to Earth, they'll come back down sort of closer to the surface of the... uh, And they'll feed on insects again. And they're amazing. And they're single brooded. They're monogamous. Just everything about them is just amazing. But unfortunately, we have begun to build them and modernize them out of our buildings because they like to nest in cracks and crevices. If you can see a nest it 's not as swift they normally because they have to catch all the materials for their nest on the wing so you 're talking about little wisps of feathers of cobwebs of bits of straw grass. they really aren't coming home with a big dome nest like a magpie or something like that it 's a tiny little ring of feathers and stuff just to keep the eggs from rolling out of the little in cavity that they've nested in. So, they then return to Southern Africa to the Congo to feed up with the Herondines, the Swallows and the Martins on all those insects to stay in body condition before returning to Europe to breed again. And because they fly around at such massive... So, they, they approach the nest at 80 kilometres an hour and they just grab the, the edge of the, the entrance hole very quickly and pull themselves in and then drop out at high speed again. 90% of people that have them in the roof of their house don't ever know they exist because they just... If you miss that flash, you just don't see them. And... When we're on the topic, i get it all off my chest now, is that they have this interesting ecology in that, unlike other birds feeding their young, they'll return to the nest every couple of minutes or even seconds with small caterpillars and mouthfuls of insects and stuff. The swift creates a cache of flies and insects called a bolus. And it's almost like when you see a full bolus in the bolus pouch of a swift, it looks like they have a second head, they have like this bulge. And sometimes to the point where they can't even get into the nest because the crack or crevice might be too small, so they have to spit it out, which is like, a, a, which is like five hours work for them, which is awful. Um, so, yeah, they're absolutely amazing species. And if you don't know about them, learn about them. Google them. They're cool. Buy the book, yeah.
2: A swift delivery of swift facts. Right, let's get into it. And for our first category, what bird is in most trouble? The most Because this is a badge of dishonor, I've decided that the points here will reverse when this in the other nation will be awarded the point.
0: Well,
1: obviously New Zealand this is a power category for us. You know, we have the highest proportion of threatened species out of any country in the world. You know, 32% of species in New Zealand are threatened with extinction. That you know for for other nations that is sort of Pretty hard to comprehend just just how dire things are in New Zealand. And when we overlay kind of with just how many of our species are endemic, which means you know they occur here and nowhere else on Earth, it really puts us in a, in a bad place.
2: That's 32% of the 168 native New Zealand bird species threatened with extinction, according to a parliamentary commissioner for the environment report from 2017 they're in serious trouble. But a further 48% were classed as in some trouble. Only one in five native birds, just 33 species, were thought to be doing okay.
1: A sad one that comes to mind here is the Tara'iti fairy tern. So, you know, less than nine breeding pairs of these things on the planet. And so you've got conservationists trying to sort of put in place a, a bunch of things they, they they're living breeding on beaches in sort of near highly populated um areas and sort of you know it, this is just incredibly challenging and you know I can say as a as a conservationist when you when you work your your day in your day out doing this stuff and you've got you know, such a limited number of these things and you're trying to do it and you know you go home some days and you think you know maybe I should have just been a postman you know you get you put the letters in the mailbox and your job's done and it's easy you know as opposed to like these things are facing such an array of human threats and across a whole you know one of the threats listed for these guys was um, picnickers you know that picnickers on the beach could threaten their nests I mean when you when your very existence on this planet is threatened by picnickers you know you've got a, you've got an issue.
0: I thought we were going to win this hands down with the most absolutely shagged species, and not in a European context, but in an Irish context, would be the curlew. But we're looking at somewhere between 120 and 150 pairs. But when you can nail it to less than 10, I feel a little bit like an imposter trying to suggest this species. But I will go through the motions and I will describe the situation facing curlew. So curlew are kind of the poster boy for ground nesting birds ground nesting farmland birds you might call them in Ireland in that ground nesting and a bird you could just already list the conflicts so the one that would be looked to historically would be agricultural intensification so moving away from literally the horse and plough and that the birds would literally move away and the farmer would know where the nest is and actually physically avoid it you know there would be a great tradition of that to moving to silage systems where there could be not one cut of silage a year in the summer there could be four up to five now because of our reliance on nitrogen So, anything that nests on the ground just has, there is no space for them anymore. Big time agricultural intensification has been the, the major driver here. But now, what they're facing, and a lot of the other ground nesting birds, such as lapwing, redshank, snipe, is the edge effect caused by our forestry practices and our forestry policy in that. We very much like to plant conifer trees for industry on very sort of what you'd call marginal land, mostly peat soils, which are leaning themselves perfectly for ground nesting species. So they're competing with that, the forestry industry now. But also the edge effect creates basically highways for foxes and generalist predators, even badgers, even hedgehogs, would you believe, and good old grey crows to hang out and watch exactly where the lapwings and the curlews are hanging out before they raid the nest and either attack and destroy the eggs or the young. So they're really in trouble and we're throwing the kitchen sink at it from a conservation point of view in that, you know, there's predator fences going up around individual nests. That's how bad it's getting. There's, There's keepering in place where, like, there's literally marksmen, you know, surrounding the site to make sure there's no foxes coming and going and all this sort of stuff but it really feels to me that it's an absolute desperate attempt to hold on to a small amount of birds.
2: A clear winner slash loser here. And not to diminish the problems that Irish curlew face the fact remains that even if breeding pairs of curlew became locally extinct from Ireland there would still be curlew to be found across Europe. For New Zealand's endemic birds extinct from here means gone forever. But Irish birds have been facing a particular threat this last year that I wanted to ask Ricky about. Avian flu.
0: Oh, Lord. Like, there you go. Like So the problem with avian flu is like our own COVID pandemic in that it gets into a population where there's high densities of birds. It rips through colonies and largely because of their ecology, seabirds like to be very close to each other in their colonies. So it rips through seabirds quite easy. And water birds, water birds because they like to winter together and it survives in water for quite a period of time. So the bug gets around. But the problem is it was a winter bug. It was a winter virus. And every year some birds would would die since it came about. But it actually jumped seasons. Somewhere along the way there was crossover with the migratory paths and everything else and birds migrating north-south affected each other. So now there is no break for for birds at all. So it's ripping through summer populations and winter populations, which is really, really dangerous. And probably actually, based on that, I might revise my most in that the rosea tern that breeds on Rockabill Island just off the coast of Dublin, it's the rarest breeding seabird in Europe and 80% of its population is on that island. And as we speak, bird flu is ripping through that colony. So God knows what they're going to look like come sort of the autumn.
2: In terms of New Zealand, Jamie, is there much chatter here about avian flu? Where we, in terms of, you know, biosecurity, looking out for it, what will be the concerns?
1: Yeah, there's certainly a lot of um, concern, and we're tracking it. As it's spreading around the world, we're seeing the really awful damaging effects of it throughout Europe and um, lots of other places around the world. As of yet, it hasn't been detected in New Zealand. We've been really lucky. A few of the flyways that are used by migratory species that visit New Zealand um, luckily don't hit the real hot spots of avian flu, but there are some exceptions to that. You know, the Barteld godwitch flying up to Alaska, and some of these birds that definitely are are visiting these spots, so it's definitely something that conservationists are really keeping an eye on. Um, in terms of options, there aren't a lot of options there. Some countries are exploring vaccination options, so can you vaccinate against this disease? But that would require pulling them into captivity or, or into into holding for a period to be able to vaccinate them against things, which always comes with its own risk as well. So yeah, we certainly um, feel for our brothers and sisters around the world dealing with that problem that is really serious and significant. Anyone who's come into New Zealand and you get the third degree from customs about whether you've got an apple and whether you've been hiking and whether your tent pigs have, this is what it's all about, is trying to make sure that, you know, alien pathogens that are um, coming from these uh, hotspots don't don't get dragged down to little old New Zealand. We, by kind of benefit of geographic isolation, we can kind of escape some of that so far.
2: Springtime now is when thousands of migratory birds arrive back to New Zealand, including the quaka, the bar-tailed godwit that Jamie mentioned. They make this incredible journey from Alaska. Satellite tracking of these birds has revealed they do non-stop 11,000 to 12,000 kilometre flights across eight or nine days to arrive in Aotearoa. A journey that a sick bird is unlikely to make. But they're not the only spring arrivals. And while New Zealand is assumed to be low risk because of the distance to other landmasses, asymptomatic bird carriers might bring it in. There have also been reports of the virus infecting cats, foxes and in Peru, sea lions. So scientists and conservationists are urging vigilance this spring and to report anything unusual to MPI. But back to the task at hand... With Ireland awarded that reverse point, the score is now 3-2 to Ireland. (laughs) Time for our second category. I ask our representatives to put forward their contenders for the most ridiculous.
0: I'm going to be very specific in that I'm going to choose a specific part of the bird's life cycle when it's absolutely ridiculous. And that is the chick, the youngsters of the Eurasian cuckoo. I don't know if you've got any cuckoos in New Zealand, but cuckoos are brood parasites. So they, they mimic the design and shape and look of the host's egg. They lay their egg in that nest and then their chick is the nest parasite or the brood parasite. It kicks out its adopted siblings and it's then the sole nestling that's fed by the the, the host family. Which in Ireland they target meadow pipits largely because their nests are easy to access, they're found in high densities. The cuckoo doesn't rear the chicks themselves, it just lays the eggs and goes about their business. So the cuckoo is a very short staying migrant in that it lands up, does the business, lays its eggs and gets out of town. But they're chicks are up to four or five times the size of the host parent. And a photo of a chick, cuckoo chick, compared to a, a meadow pipit, or in the UK you might see them, sedge wobblers feeding them or, or something similar. It looks absolutely alien and bizarre. And for me, that has got to be the weirdest, strangest. What was the category again? Most ridiculous. Most ridiculous thing. It's, it's ridiculous that a bird would look at its youngster, you know, literally with rose-tinted glasses and go, how did I rear this Beast.
2: Look, he's a little bit chonky, but, you know, I'll keep feeding him.
0: Correct. (laughs) They're weird. (laughs) Google it. Everyone listening to this, Google it. It's all weird looking.
1: Ooh, good one. We do have two species of cuckoo in New Zealand as well, and I've never, ever seen a nest. I'd be so interested to see. Same thing, they parasite the nest and, you know, lay their eggs in, the. In, I think it's um grey warblers and whiteheads here in New Zealand. That Yeah, I'd be so interested to see that sort of, like, what, how does that work? <laughs> um, the most ridiculous I'm going to come up with, and this is slightly, it's actually... Um, the Kiwi and the Kiwi is a bird that everybody knows and within conservation in New Zealand you know we've got uh, Kiwi bank Kiwi rail Kiwi post you know in New Zealand there's Kiwi everywhere we identify with Kiwi we name a fruit after it but, you know but uh, and and within my career in conservation it was quite a while before I actually did any work with Kiwi you know a, a part of me was a little bit like oh Kiwi you know they get all they get the money and the, you know everybody wants to work with Kiwi celebrity manga species you know but I distinctly remember the first time I held a, a big adult Tokoika. and this thing's like, you know, probably like three, three and a half kilos, the size of like a good, you know, Jack Spaniel. And and I was you sort of the way you hold it so that you don't hurt it is your arm underneath its back, sort of cradling it like you might have a baby or an oversized sort of toddler, and. Uh, they're just, you know, I, I've sort of heard about these things and you've known about them all your life, so it kind of doesn't clock just how absurd they are as a bird. You know, They, they've got this long... Spike of a walking stick of a bill out the front with little tiny nostrils not where everybody else's nostrils are, but right at the end of the bill. they've got this shaggy these beady little eyes that they can't see anything. they're out all night and this shaggy coat and the, the feathers themselves are quite incredible. Um, if you imagine a, a seagull feather that you see on the beach and that sort of sleek slick kind of flight feather in two dimensional plane. so all of the what we call the barbules the little bits that come off the main feather shaft in a seagull feather like you might see they all come off on a two dimensional plane they all run parallel to each other they're all beautiful so that, that guides flight within a kiwi they've got no need for flight and they they've a very old lineage of bird and so they're all coming off at all angles at all these crazy angles so the feather instead of being this one sleek smooth thing is this kind of like poof of fluff that um, you know so you're holding it in your arm and instead of having like what you might think of every other bird you've ever seen in your life which is a nice you know oh yes very good plumage it's like this shaggy coat of fur and all of that is covered with oil from the the kiwi itself you know you're cradling this thing that's a long stick bill thing out the front these sort of big old feet that are about a third of the length of its body this shaggy kind of roughly coat and i just remember having this moment thinking this is ridiculous this is utterly ridiculous what is this thing isn't a bird
2: what happened <laughs> I mean, these are two excellent examples of how crazy evolution can be, like the things that spin off. And I guess for kiwi, Jamie, you know, this is one of the characteristics of birds in Aotearoa, New Zealand, is that they, many of them are flightless or very poor flyers. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? So what the setup is in New Zealand that has facilitated this ridiculousness
1: yeah yeah that's right so so new zealand spun off from Gondwana land, that big ancient kind of mega continent before the advent of terrestrial mammals. So we started drifting south into the southern ocean before there were mammal lineages, if you like, that evolved. And so without those mammals filling out to fill niches. So for example, in different land masses, it looks slightly different in different beautiful ways that evolution's taken place. But where other countries might have an aardvark or a mole that runs around the forest floor, or you know, digs and eats grubs and does things. New Zealand needed a birdie answer to that, or, or rather there was a what we call an ecological niche, a gap in the market, you know, bugs there for the taking if you can come up with a, a solution to the problem. And so the solution to the problem that evolution came up with in New Zealand was this 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 wild thing.
2: Look, the kiwi is like New Zealand's joker. You pull it out, nothing can defeat it. Jamie decides now's the time to claw back a point, and he's done it. It's 3-0 as we move into our final category. The hardiest. What bird has had the odds stacked against it and yet it's still there? The fighter that gets knocked down but keeps getting back up.
0: We don't really have a Steven Seagal in that, a species that just won't die. But we do have one, a big comeback story, the sort of rocky balboa of of Irish birds in the buzzard, common buzzard. Widely distributed across Europe, but way back when in the sort of uh, early 1900s or 20th century we almost got rid of them completely because they were seen as a, a nemesis to the sort of hill farmer and the sheep killing sheep and all that sort of stuff they got a really bad name for themselves and we basically poisoned them with um, we poisoned them out almost into extinction in Ireland and a tiny tiny population held out up the north and in the 80s and 90s they made a massive comeback and now they're the most common bird. so every time someone says they've seen an eagle in Ireland it is a buzzard. And when your mum or your granny says I've seen an eagle I've seen a bird of prey it's a buzzard. So a large raptor but dumpy sort of short strong wings. You can see the sort of open flight feathers on the tips of the wings those fingers but very varying underneath their plumage could be white brown, black, grey but with a fan kind of tail quite a wide splayed fan tail and you often see them The, the, the mewing call really is what gives them away this high pitched mewing call Because like many raptors, they, if they want to travel any distance or, or observe their, their domain, they do so by travelling on the terminals that's coming off the land. So they're quite often just circling high, like in old Western movies, like the buzzards waiting for like, you know, it to fall off your horse and pick mm. your bones. Because they eat carrion largely. They'll have a go at pheasants, which is also one of the reasons it got them into trouble. Because you can imagine, as a colonial nation for quite some time, uh, the good old boys used to like, come and do their pheasant shoots and all those sort of things. So anything that would sort of conflict with that got shot or poisoned on these estates so kind of a a culture of poisoning buzzards emerged and lasted and has lasted in certain communities and places to this day but they're really really doing well and a couple of summers ago a couple of pairs around the place did start attacking random joggers so that didn't do their sort of brand any good either so there was a little bit of pushback there but uh, I think to grit your teeth and stick with it and claw yourself back into the fight I think it's the buzzard.
2: A strong contender. But while the extinct rule may have hampered Jamie earlier in this competition, there are no restrictions on previously known as extinct birds.
1: This is uh, positive stuff today about, you know, how New Zealand really excels at this extinct bird category. And we excel at the extinct bird category so much, we've actually had five different species that have been called extinct. (laughs) But we actually, uh, we jumped the gun. (laughs) We thought they were extinct; hadn't been seen for a hundred years. Oh, and they came back again. So things like the New Zealand storm petrel, um, which was sort of rediscovered following conservation efforts on on Hauturu Island, but the kind of classic textbook example here, eh, is the um, is the takahe, and um, we work a lot with predator control regimes and doing what we can for takahe in the Murchison Mountains, um, down in southern New Zealand, where um, the takahe were rediscovered. One of the quirks of Takahae is um, one of the highest death categories that, that we have. So we that we have them eaten by introduced predators, etc. But they also die of misadventure, which is the blight way of saying just being quite silly. Um, so, you know, you're tracking a bird, you're doing everything you can, and then you <laughs> then you find it in a puddle. And it's just sort of <laughs> in the puddle. Or uh, fallen off a cliff, um, got hit by an avalanche. These things, you know, they, they're living in the murchison mountains which is an incredibly rugged remote mountain range in southern new zealand and they're likely living there because it is a difficult place to live they've sort of hung on on the Edge of survival in this really challenging place, and so you know where your natural death rate is high due to things like being swamped by an avalanche or being being flooded out and so these guys are like the definition of the you know the good kiwi battler they 've just been holding on they 've just been doing everything they can, and you know. One year we had 30% of the wild population was eaten by a big predator eruption. 30% of your population got smoked and still they're coming back. We've got them back up to above what they were and they're just doing well. And so, They are the hardiest, they are the, the true Kiwi battlers, go the Takahe.
2: Maybe at another time the buzzard would have had a chance here. The Fighting Irish, a glorious comeback. If it hadn't been for some recent developments on the Takahe front, the late August release of nine pairs into Naitahu owned Greenstone Station near Glenorchy, hopefully the founding birds of a new third wild population of Takahe. Could the release have been timed specifically to disrupt the outcome of this very competition? Or could they have timed the release that they had been planning for a long time based on the cooperative decision of all parties involved because it was the right time for the birds in a fair weather window? Investigations are underway. But this development hands the hardiest category to New Zealand. (coughs) And with that, the title. And so, I give you the winners of the inaugural Ireland vs New Zealand Bird Off Aotearoa New Zealand. But before our representatives depart to celebrate and sulk, I ask them one last question their thoughts on the future.
1: My hope is that as we learn to live alongside nature or as you know integrated as part of nature a lot of New Zealand's history of since humans have arrived in this country we've done pretty much what humans have done when they arrive on any great landmass which has um, had a devastating effect on the wildlife and at some point that that settles into a stasis and I guess the next sort of 50 years in New Zealand will be a time where we get to see whether we pull out of this current decline where you know two-thirds of our species are, are still declining or uh, you know, are we done with that period? And can we find this new, this new level where humans can live integrated as part of nature with, with the animals that surround us? Because um, I certainly feel on a personal level that when my life has nature in it, I'm a kind of happier, healthier human. And so a future where everybody has that in their life just
0: seems like a, a more positive kind of thing. I definitely echo everything Jamie says, like almost to the word. And I would just add that in Europe, currently, politically, the only show in town is the nature restoration law. And if it all works out in terms of biodiversity and having a future for nature in Europe, it's going to have to have very strong deliverables, targeted deliverables framed with proper laws. And if they manage to get that through European Parliament, I think we're on a winner. And then I would think the second thing is within my lifetime that, well, hopefully much quicker than that, is that the climate and biodiversity targets and policies align a bit better in Ireland especially there's a big rush to grow trees plant trees but that's at the detriment of lots of ground nesting species like I mentioned with curlew and stuff like that and even like what we call active travel here try to get people on their bikes essentially we're putting in these blueways and greenways which are basically tracks for people to cycle infrastructure safely which is great but in most cases it's ripping out really nice habitat to do so so it's just it's really ridiculous conflict where there shouldn't be one because what's good for the goose should be good for the gander in terms of environment you know, as a whole.
2: Huge thanks to the representatives who answered their nation's calls. Ricky Whelan for staying up late and Jamie McCauley for getting up early. Thanks also to Mary Kyo of Port Arlington Enterprise Centre for the use of their recording booth. If you want to listen to more of its tangents and tales, Ricky co-hosts a podcast with Birdwatch Ireland. It's called In Your Nature and you can find it in all the usual places. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon, with help from William Ray and Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering was by Phil Bench and Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. Our webpage is at rnz.co.nz slash worlds where we'll put up photos, links and more information on all the contenders. Disagree with the decisions? Got ideas for other categories? do get in touch. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook where we are at RNZ Science or email us at OurChangingWorld at rnz.co.nz Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Concanon. Have a great week. Kia pāi wiki.